Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Last week wasn't afflicting the comfortable for me. Stephen is one of those guys, he kind of got up in my junk, and uh, hopefully you received that with the hope, with the intent of it, to, to be encouraged and challenged. Today, we're going the other direction. We're going to look at a guy by the name of Philip, and we're going to see his story. And I pray that uh, if you're coming in here today and you're hurting or you're struggling, this is a blessing to you. So we start every time that we open up God's Word together. We open it, we stand, we read it, and we pray over it. So I'm going to have you do that. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. There's a screen behind me that's going to be putting everything up. But we're going to read Acts chapter 8. Go ahead and stand up. Acts chapter 8. We're going to go verse 1 to verse 8, and then we're going to go verse 26 to verse 40. So a little bit of standing. I'll read fast. No worries. I'll pray, and then we'll get to it. Stephen has been martyred. We pick up the story in 8 and verse 1. And Saul approved his, that being Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul ravaged the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowd with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And then go over to verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit down with him. And the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began this scripture, with, beginning with the scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and he passed through, and he preached the gospel to all towns until he came to Caesarea. And let's pray. God, today we are your people, and we are in need of a word from you. We are in need of your Holy Spirit speaking to us, and we're here dependent on his work and on his purposes in this time and in this place. 
God, lots of us are coming from different places. We've had different weeks. We are maybe hurting or distracted or uh, maybe we're excited. I, I don't know where folks are coming from and I'm thankful that you do. So I pray that you'll speak to each one of us in a way that we can hear according to the purposes that you have for us based on what we've come from and what you want us to go to. And we'll thank you for that in your name and for your glory and for our joy. And as people said, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So I want to uh, have you do something that we talk about quite a bit around here. It's to spend a little bit of time thinking about the Bible as something that actually happened with actual people who had actual responses to it. I think one of the great dangers of reading the Bible just, uh, you know, on a reading plan is you're just reading it to get done with it for the day. And you don't spend time thinking and contemplating and, and, and considering what it would have been like to have been a part of this story. So let me, let me do this for us. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, we see the first Christian martyr in the New Testament church. His name is Stephen. He's brought before the religious Pharisees and Sadducees and he's accused of essentially heresy and he gives them a history lesson that results in him being stoned to death. And let me explain to you what being stoned was. Stone was you were taken out to the edge of the city and you were thrown off of the highest place that they could so that you were wounded in the fall so that you couldn't run around at the bottom. And once you were laying in an isolated location, they would throw and roll the biggest rocks that they could on top of you until it killed you. This happened. And this happened to somebody that people who were a part of the church in Jerusalem knew and loved and cared for. This wasn't some guy that they had seen on TV or the internet. This wasn't some dude that they had heard of. This is somebody that they had had in their house for dinner. This is somebody who had prayed for them. This is somebody who they loved. And this was somebody who had been murdered for beliefs that they held. This is the equivalent to us finding out that Matt was arrested, was tried, was found guilty, and was executed for being a Christian. We wouldn't just go, oh, okay. There would be an enormous, enormous grieving process to that. And the reality of it is, is that this wasn't the end of the story. This was just really the beginning of the story. What we see in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 is that Stephen was really the flashpoint for an incredible persecution of the church. And we see that the guy who led the persecution of the church was a dude by the name of Saul. And that Saul literally goes from door to door. He bangs on the front door and they open the door. Yes, can I help you? And he has questions for them around their faith. And if they're a Christian, he doesn't say, thank you, have a nice day. It was for the census. He drags them out of their house. He drags their wife out of the house. He drags their kids out of the house. And he throws them in prison. And it's not like they go through their prison term and they come back and find out that their electricity bill lapsed. They come back and their home is gone. It's not theirs anymore. And so imagine being a part of a church where every Sunday that you show up, somebody else has lost their home. Somebody else has been executed. Somebody else is experiencing enormous suffering, not because they're criminals, but because they're Christians. This is what's happening in the early church. This is what's going on. And I want you to understand that when we read through this account of the early church, that the two primary catalysts for the growth of the early church, one was the Holy Spirit and the other was persecution. There is no part in the story of the church until the last hundred years or so where it was free to be a Christian. 
God has always seen fit to have pain and suffering be a part of the story of the people who love and follow him and uh, identify themselves by his name. And so that represents some important questions for us because I wonder how many of you would say you have a strong belief system around God's uses for pain and suffering. I think that for some of us, we tend to think that pain is like the dirty thing that God doesn't like to touch. Pain doesn't have anything to do with God. And things happen to us and we develop theology, generally bad theology, that doesn't help us when the bottom falls out or when things cost us more than we thought we were going to cost us or when people betray us or when people hurt us or we experience loss or suffering. And I would say to you that if you are a Christian here without a theology around pain, you are asking for it in the future. Two categories that I want you to think about pain. One, the most remarkably detrimental, destructive, hurtful, uh, painful kind of pain is, is pointless pain. It's the kind of pain that you don't know why it happened. You don't know what you're going to do with it. It marks you and scars you and at some level defines you, but you don't have any kind of equilibrium around where it came from or where it's sending you. The other kind of pain is purposeful pain. It's the kind of pain, listen, that remains painful, that still marks you, that still has an effect on you, but that either with time or the grace of God, you identify it as being purposeful for something greater than the person who did it to you or than you could have conceived of. And that kind of pain, listen, doesn't stop being painful but it has a different kind of slant, a different kind of angle, and a different kind of perspective on it. Here's what I need you to understand. Without getting into all the philosophy around pain, I can say it as simply as this. If you're a Christian in here, pain is never pointless when God is involved. Ever. Pain is always purposeful. It doesn't mean that pain is from God, or God's the author of sin, or God delights in seeing us suffer, but it does mean that God is willing, capable, and regularly uses pain to bring us into a place that we couldn't have otherwise gotten to. The way that I would say it is that pain does two things. It seasons us, and it deepens us. I uh, have spent a fair amount of time reading some of the literature and letters from civil rights leaders. Civil rights leaders in our country went through unimaginable pain for something that was just and right and good. Amen? And you read them and you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe the way that this guy or gal is thinking. I don't understand how they're getting there. There's so much wisdom and grace and perspective and depth. Where does that come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. Loss and suffering and pain. There are some things that you can only know while you're going through pain or after you've come through pain. But no pain, listen to me, no pain for those who love and follow Jesus is ever pointless. It is always purposeful. It's always, 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 turn to your neighbor and say, he said, always purposeful. It's always purposeful. It's never pointless. God is greater than our pain. God is bigger than our pain. God is grander than our pain. Pain is a reality and pain is painful, but God uses it for His purposes. And what we see 
in the early church is that this early church was being persecuted and as they lost their homes, they spread out and as they spread out, they took the gospel with them. And as the gospel went with them, disciples were made and as disciples were made, churches were planted. And the early church exploded in growth and health and fruit on the back of losing their homes and lives. God had a purpose. God had a plan. And the early church, the seed of the early church uh, was watered with the blood of saints who believed that God had saved them by his grace. One of the characters in that story, and when I say characters, I don't mean it to be fictional. I mean one of the participants is a dude by the name of Philip. Philip shows up for us in John chapter 1 and verse 43. The way that he becomes a follower of Jesus is literally that Jesus walks up to him and says, yo, follow me. And Philip says, okay. (laughs) And he drops what he's doing. Then he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he becomes a Christian. And and he becomes a disciple. He's one of the 12 disciples. And most of what we know about Philip uh, happens in the book of John. But most of the time when we see him, he's paired with a dude by the name of Nathaniel, who was also known as Bartholomew. And the reason that those two are together is that after Jesus said to Philip, follow me, Philip said to Nate or Bart, depending on what you called him, hey man, you got to meet this guy. And Nate or Bart came with Phil and they both followed Jesus together. And so they're kind of like, you know, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, right? They're always in the story together. I don't know which one was funny and which one was cute, but uh, they're, they're always together. And there's one main story that kind of gives us a proper perspective on who Philip was, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. Philip was probably a dude who was gifted administratively. He was probably a guy who was about structures and systems. And so whenever Jesus wants to feed 5,000 people, the person that he asks about how to do that was Philip. And here's essentially how it goes down. Jesus comes up to Phil and he says, Phil, how much money we got in the bank, man? We got enough to feed these people? And Philip's response is, that's probably going to cost about 200 bucks, and that, or we got 200 bucks, and that 200 bucks ain't going to feed those 5,000 people. So Jesus comes to Philip and says, there's something that I want to do to be a blessing to these folks, to help them understand who I am. Tell me how to do that. And Philip says, we can't. We can't do that, man. We got, we've got this much money in this much month. I understand that you want to do this thing, but this is all that I've got. Maybe you guys have found yourself in that perspective. You think that God might be asking you to do this, but all you can see is this. God's saying, let's go over here and do this. And you say, we can't go over there. Look at what I don't have here. That's what happens to Philip. And we know that in the story, Jesus takes a couple loaves and a couple fish And he compounds those and they exponentially grow miraculously. And as the disciples are walking around, reaching into buckets to hand out fish and bread, they never hit the bottom. Now, what do you think Philip was thinking as he was watching this happen? (laughs) Well, yeah, I drank too much. Yeah, well, I I think that with every person that got a belly full, Philip felt more and more foolish. Like, I... I didn't have a framework for that. I only had a framework for this. And here's what I want you to understand. Uh, faith is a framework. And there are times where God wants to grab both sides of your framework and pull as hard as he can on them. 
That's what faith is, right? I understand this, and I understand that you want me to understand this, but I can't see this because this is on top of my eyes. And the difference between this and this is faith. And Philip didn't have it. How would you like your story in the Bible, in the Gospels, to be Jesus says to you, I'm going to do this thing, you want to help me, and you go, we can't do that, man. Philip's story in the Gospels is of a man who struggled with faith, struggled with framework. And so if pain deepens us, faith widens us. You get me? Faith is God taking circumstances and teaching and understanding and expanding our possibilities based on who he is and what he has done to see and do things that here we would have never imagined. Philip was here in John chapter 6. And by the time we get to John chapter 8, he's lost his buddy Stephen. He's lost his house. And he's wondering how this is going to look any different. Ephesians chapter 8 and verse 4 says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, what does that mean? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. For example, Philip, what does that let us know about Philip? That Philip lost everything that he had. And so that concept of pain, that concept of suffering, isn't something that he's like, and then 10 years ago this happened. It's happening right now. This isn't pain in his rearview mirror. This is pain in his peripheral vision on the road in front of him, in the road behind him. He is neck deep in pain right now. And his response is that he goes about preaching the word and he goes down to the city of Samaria. Let me tell you something about Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes of Israel during this time. And whenever the northern tribes of Israel rebelled against God, God sent them prophets to say, yo, you need to stop doing this. You need to repent and follow me. And what did the northern tribes of Israel do to those prophets? They killed them. Yeah, they killed them. And so God does what all good parents do when they say, Johnny, go clean your room. And Johnny says, no. You don't go, okay. He says, no, I'm going to repeat myself. And the way that he repeats himself is that he sends a group of people known as the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come in and they very emphatically make the point. The consequence of sin, the judgment that God has for them, they come in, they attack Samaria, they defeat Samaria, they sack Samaria, and they deport most of the inhabitants of Samaria. And to replace the ones that they took out, the Jews that they took out of Samaria, they send who back in? Assyrians. And so the new Samaria becomes the leftover Jews and the sent Assyrians. And over time, what happens? The remaining Jews and the sent Assyrians look across the room and they think, she's kind of cute. I think I'll go talk to her. And they go over and they talk and next thing you know, they're at Starbucks sipping lattes and then they're going to a movie and then they're meeting the folks and then they're getting married and then they're having babies. And the new Samaria to a Jew is a group full of half-breeds. They're neither Jewish 
nor Gentile. And one of the worst things that you could be to a Jew was not only not full-blooded Jewish, but not full-blooded anything. And so Samaria was a place in the territory of God's people that out of the judgment of God was filled with people who were part Jew, part Gentile, and the Jews in the most racist, vicious, vitriol way hated them. Now, if you start a new family and you think about what you want your family to be, some of y'all have done this. We left church in our 20s and then I saw this cute gal or this handsome guy and we fell in love and we had kids and we thought to ourselves, we need to go back to... Yeah. And so what did the Samaritans do? They built a temple and they established a religion and that religion didn't have anything to do with the Old Testament like the Jews liked. They had their own gods and their own religion and their own theology. So not only were they half-breeds, they were heretics. And if you were hated for being a half-breed, you were certainly hated for being a heretic. The Samaritans were the worst of both worlds. In fact, John chapter 4 and verse 9 says it this way, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You got to picture that with a pinky in the air, right? No, we don't. (laughs) We don't talk to them. In fact, we know historically that to get to southern Israel, you would have to go through Samaria and that some Jews, rather than trying to get to Illinois and have to go through Beloit, they went up to the UP and down through Michigan and into Ohio and then Indiana and then to Illinois. Why? Because they didn't want to get Beloit dirt on their tires. And so the Samaritans were hated for being half-breeds. They were hated for being heretics. And they were hated to the point that a good Jew wouldn't even get Samaritan dirt on his feet. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word and Philip went down to the city of Samaria. If you're a Jew, you go, (laughs) where? Samaria? Well, I mean, good for you. You go down to Samaria. I mean, it's weird. I don't know why I would do that, but that couldn't have gone well. And he proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds, not just one or two dudes, not just one or two gals, not just one outlier. The crowds in one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip and they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many of them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. A dude who had just lost his house went to a place you weren't supposed to go and changed the city in the midst of his pain, and in the midst of his suffering. The second thing that we see Philip do is that he's introduced to an Ethiopian eunuch. The Bible doesn't let us know his name, but it lets us know some really important things about him. So let me introduce him to you. An Ethiopian, if I say the Ethiopian eunuch, what do you think about this guy? He's from where? He's from Ethiopia, yeah. (laughs) Some of y'all didn't say Ethiopia. How can you not say Ethiopia? It's like right there. All right, anyways. Um, Ethiopian was actually a statement of the person's external appearance. It wasn't that they were necessarily from 
Ethiopia. The Jews were a little bit infatuated with somebody uh, who had very dark skin and kind of regal cheekbones and that kind of thing. And so if you looked like you were very dark skinned and very regal, you were, you were Ethiopian. This guy was actually probably from someplace in what is now northern Sudan. And the thing that you need to know about where he came from is that the king of his territory was regarded as a god. He was the child of the sun, like up in the sky, the actual sun. And because of that, he didn't have any duties in the governance of state. He was kind of like Prince Charles, right? He shakes hands and kisses babies, but he doesn't really make any decisions because he's above that. And so the actual functional ruler was the queen. And in Acts chapter 8, when we're introduced to the Ethiopian eunuch, we see that the queen's name was what? was Candace. Candace is the queen. She is in charge of all of the duties of state. And the guy who took care of all of her treasures and all of her finances was who? This guy. And so you need to understand that at this point, this was an area that was profoundly wealthy with natural material. They were exorbitantly wealthy. They were exorbitantly influential. And this guy was in charge of all of it. The second thing, that, or the third thing that we know about him is that he was a eunuch. Now let me tell you what a eunuch is. There's two kinds of eunuchs. One is an involuntary eunuch, and that would be guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where an army comes in, takes prisoners of wars, takes you back, makes you a part of their government, and makes you a eunuch. And here was the point. The point was your life, your legacy, anything about you ends right here. You don't get to have kids. You don't get to have a family tree. Your entire life is devoted to this and to us and to what you're doing. And there is nothing after that. Don't have hopes for anything else. It was one of the most oppressive, one of the most violent things that you could do to a human being. And it was it was common practice. We don't know if that was what this guy was or not. The other side was a voluntary eunuch, which was somebody who loved his king or loved his queen and wanted to serve his country or the kingdom and would make the statement, I will give everything that I am and everything that I have and I will make that exclamation point, a serious exclamation point, becoming a eunuch so that you know that I have no ambition or aspiration for anything for myself. Everything that I am is devoted to this. This man was an Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of all of the treasures of the kingdom. And what does it say that he was doing and where he was going? That he had gone to Jerusalem to what? To worship. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship, which tells you some interesting things about this guy. I imagine that if you're a eunuch, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, there comes a point where you're grieving the fact that you have no legacy. I imagine that there comes a point where you think to yourself, I'm, I'm never going to hold a baby anything done. I'm never going to, to, to look at somebody and think they're going to carry on my name. I'm never going to have any dreams for them. I'm not going to have any hopes for them. Everything that I am, my entire family, cul-de-sacs, right here, there is nothing beyond it. That idea, whether you chose it or not, would be a violent one to the psyche of a human being because I think that God built us with eternity on our mind. 
God built us with legacy in our hearts. And to become a eunuch was to say, I have no legacy. And so I think that this is a guy who maybe he's not second guessing because there's not really any second guessing being a eunuch, if you know what I'm saying. But he's struggling with and he's trying to come to some kind of idea or some kind of diagnosis or some kind of prescription for making his life matter past his last breath. And so he goes to Jerusalem to worship, which means that he would have gone to what? To the temple. And when he got to the temple, what do you think he found out? He found out according to Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1 that he wasn't welcome. Eunuchs weren't allowed in the temple. And so this guy of affluence, this guy of influence, this guy with no legacy past his last breath comes looking for answers to the people of God and they say, you're not welcome. And so he gets back into his chariot and he says, take me home. And this is as hopeless of a situation as you can have. I came here looking for answers and I got one. It's just that there is no solution. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. Now why I love this. Because it's like God goes out of his way to send somebody to somebody who's hopeless. There's a guy, he's on a road. I want you to go find him. I want you to go talk to him. And the thing that you need to notice is that Philip went. Now, understand, Philip who just lost everything. Philip who was sitting in the rubble of his life. Philip, who was hopeless. And God says, I want you to go talk to this Ethiopian eunuch after you went to Samaria. And Philip doesn't say, yo, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if you can see what's going on, what probably you did to me. Philip doesn't say that. Philip gets up and he goes and he comes up running alongside, you know, like in the movie, right? Falling behind, he can't see him there, right? Hey, man, which, by the way, probably wasn't the most socially kosher thing to do. Like, he didn't run up to the third in charge of the kingdom and be like, hey, buddy, how's it going? But that's exactly what Philip does, the the boldness out of ash. He comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch and he says, hey, man, you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch, having been rejected at the temple, having been trying to wrap his head around his legacy, goes to the obvious place. The place that you and I regularly go when we're needing comfort. The book of Isaiah. Right? <laughs> right? No. Okay. And I want you to actually go to Isaiah chapter 56 because I think that he came across something that very much piqued his interest. And I want you to see it with your own eyes. Isaiah 56, verse 3. And I want you to remember what we talked about with this guy and who he was. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the... Hello. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. What happens to a dry tree? It doesn't give what? 
fruit. Don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better <laughs> than sons and daughters. And I will give them a, what's the next word? An everlasting name that will not be, no pun intended, cut off. You, you got to picture this guy who has at his access wealth and influence and power, but the only thing that he wants is legacy and a name and fruit. And he goes to the temple and he's like, you can't come in here. And he gets into his chariot and he opens up the book of Isaiah and he reads all the way to chapter 56. And probably he's having somebody read it to him and they're saying, Isaiah 56, and there's no three at the time, right? There's actually no 56. So they're just reading along. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, and he goes down and let not the eunuch say, and he probably goes, what? Let not the eunuch say. Like you, boss, you're a eunuch. Yes, thank you, I know what I am. Keep reading. And he reads a little bit further down. Don't let him say, behold, I'm a dry tree. And I imagine, I imagine as a daddy and as a man who wants legacy, as soon as he reads that, he's like, his ears start to, start to, to perk up. And to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, and to those who choose to please me, who hold my covenant, I will give a monument. What's a monument? Something that after I'm dead and gone remains. Right? And I'll give him a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And I imagine that he starts just ripping through the book of Isaiah. What, how does this happen? Where does this go? What, what's going on with this? And in Acts chapter 8, we see what he comes across. Acts chapter 8 and verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before his shears is silent, so opens he not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from him. And he probably sits back in his chariot, and right as he sits back, hey buddy! <laughs> Do not just read the Bible for ink and page, my friends. This is an incredible incredible story and what does Philip say hey man hey could you slow down just just for one second you understand what you're reading and, and you can see him walking alongside the chariot trying to talk to the to, to the man right and what does the, the eunuch say how can I unless somebody guides me like here's the deal I, I read this thing in Isaiah 53 tell me who this guy is why because if that, if I can find this guy, that can be my legacy, right? And so he tells the chariot to stop. He invites Philip up and look at what it says in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. You know how many times, guys, I say to you, don't say to folks, just look at my life. You gotta open your, what if, what if he's like, I don't, I don't understand. And Philip's like, Here's the deal, man. We could hang out. You could look at my life and you could deduce from that that Jesus is God. No. He opened his mouth 
And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I can tell you about this guy. I can tell you about this dude in Ephesians 53. <laughs> and they're, they're going along and, P, and Philip is giving him the gospel and they come to a lake and the eunuch says, I want that. I want to make it known. There's, a, there's a, a pond, there's a lake, there's a puddle, whatever it is. What prevents me from getting baptized? And Philip says, not me, baby. <laughs> and they get down and Philip baptized him baptizes him and then what happens he's gone and what happens to the Ethiopian eunuch he went on his way rejoicing what happened in the city of Samaria the city was filled with joy what happened to the eunuch he went away rejoicing after a guy who had just lost everything showed up after a guy in the middle of the ashes of his life showed up the people that he interacted with left rejoicing left filled with joy a city was changed a country was changed guys if you read about the history of the Ethiopian people in the Ethiopian country it is absolutely brimming with the gospel Philip in the middle of the ashes of his life was used by God to change a city, all of it, and a country, all of it. Because he believed that no pain is pointless. What kind of guy, what kind of gal do you send to people who are hurting, to people who are marginalized, to people who are rejected? Can I just give you my two cents? People deep in pain and wide in faith. You don't send to people who have been rejected, people who have always been in. You don't send to people who are hurting, people who have always had success. You don't send to people who are marginalized, those who have always been the cool kids. You send them people who have hurt and believed that it was purposeful. And this is why this is so exciting to me. Because we are in a church with a lot of folks who have a lot of pain. And because we're in a city that you start spending time in that city and you find out there's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of marginalization. There's a lot of hurt. What kind of people does God send to that kind of place? The kind of people who sitting in the middle of their ash say, this is not for nothing. I don't know what it's for. I can't see it. All I can see is this. But there's been enough times where God did this that I believe the disparity isn't him, it's me. And so today is one of those opportunity times. It's one of those opportunity times where we come to God's word and we see something so poignant, so relevant... And we think, what would happen if my act of faith, if your act of faith was to believe that the things in my story that I'm ashamed of, the things in my story that make my eyes well up, the things in my story that still hurt to this day, what if they weren't pointless? What if there was a purpose for them? Here's what I believe. 
I believe that the more pain, the deeper you are, the more faith, and don't ever get it twisted, faith is painful, the wider you are, and what God does in widening and deepening you makes you larger so that more people can come in. Those of us that our worldview is this big, not many people can fit in that. And pain and faith has a way of making your worldview this big and that deep. And you know who can fit in that? Samaritans and eunuchs. Today's one of those times, guys, where whatever your story is, you, you bring it to God. This is something that I'm learning. You bring your story to God and you don't say, God, please fix it. Because there's things that have already happened. You don't say, God, please fix it. You say, God, please use it. Please use it. I don't know how this looks. I don't, I, this happened to me. I did this to me. I look down, I think I'm fine, and I'm, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm broken. I'm bloody. I'm, I'm hurting. I'm sitting in the ash of others' decisions and of my decisions. And you bring all of that to God, and in faith you say, I'm not asking you to fix it. I'm just asking you to use it. And here's what I think God does. I think God takes our life and makes an everlasting name out of it. I think that God takes our life when people come to him and say, here it is. He says, I'm going to take that and that and that and that and I'm going to have all of these things make another story that will surpass your last breath. For some of you today, the, the line that you've come to is, you have your story all over you. And you have no idea how it's anything other than pointless. And the step of faith for you is to consider the possibility and to come to God and say, I'm going to give it to you because I believe you say it can be purposeful. I can't see it, but I think you can use it to feed 5,000 people. And so I give it to you. And I ask you to do with it what you will and to make a monument of your glory not just for my time and place for generations to come a monument of your name a monument of your grace a monument of your purposes that when people walk by it they think maybe my story could be like that maybe maybe I am invited Maybe I am a part. Maybe God does love me. And the belief that you God, give God that little space and what will God do? He'll, he'll send someone from out of town to come and talk to you only to suck them out into the sky. That's all that he sent Philip to do. Just go tell him, it's legit. Jesus is real. <laughs> what kind of God does that? That God is the same God today who knows what you're going through, what's happened to you, no pain is pointless. Widening by faith, deepening by pain to invite whosoever for a monument and a testimony of his grace and glory. Stand with me if you would. We're going to have some folks to my back left who would love to talk to you. I, I know some of your stories, others I don't. Um, and we live in a fallen, broken world. 
And that experience can be very painful and very dramatic. And I don't want you to walk out of here in any belief that any of that is pointless. I want you to walk out of here in the belief that God's bigger than that. And so if you'd like someone to pray with you, there'll be some folks in the back to do that. We're going to sing because there's some of us that God rewrote our story. God used our story. And so we praise. And if you'd like to come up and take communion, we'd love to have you do that if you're a follower of Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the stories of each and every person in this room. God, our enemy is so violent and is so destructive. And sometimes he kills us with a thousand cuts and sometimes he kills us with blunt force trauma. But all of us have stories of pain and of hurt. Stories that we walk around with. Stories that we react to. Stories that define us. Stories that aren't what you have for us. So God, today I'm not asking you to fix stories. I'm just asking you to use them. I'm not asking you to to give us the full story. I'm just asking you to give us the strength to believe that pain is purposeful. To believe that you can take the small and make it big. To believe that you can change cities and countries with my story, my insignificant story, because you're greater than all of it. So God, would you give us the courage to just step across that line? just avail ourselves to you to just give who we are and where we're going and where we've been to you in the belief God that you have plans and purposes that extend our life monuments and testimonies of the gospel and of your grace would you do that here today people in this room in my life and in this church we thank you for it in the good name of Jesus